Hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast 13, I think, lucky 13. And I have with me Chris Rossi in Los Angeles and Guy Zimmerman in Los Angeles. Both are writers, both have been involved um, with me at times uh, in theater and in film and TV. So hi, Chris. Hi, Guy. Hey, John. Hey, John. Um, I wanted to, uh, to talk about writing, since you guys are writers, and, and in theory, I'm a writer. <laughs> um, and, and kind of talk about, maybe talk about it personally in a way, like, like how does one approach writing? And also, I think this conversation is going to drift into to how one teaches writers too. I, it just, that seems inevitable, but, but let's start with, um, <clears throat> you know, how, how one writes. Let me, I'll give you an, in, an intro <laughs> to this. Um, I was talking, a, a kid who I know, a kid, everybody's a kid to me, um, uh, a younger writer I know who was in Ireland wrote me and said, you know, he likes to read great writers. <clears throat> and I mentioned this in the last, last podcast, um, before he himself sits down to write. And I said, I think that's quite normal I do that, it's like a palate cleansing process or something. Um, one of many, one of many um, kind of rituals, I think that, that writers engage in. Um, but let's use that as a, as a starting point, how one begins to sit down to write, firstly. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, for me, John, it's, it's getting in a place of unknowing, which is, sort of increasingly hard in this world of GPS and screens and things like that. But just to, you know, whatever rituals get me there, coffee, reading something, but, you know, to just kind of get in a place of forgetting and letting, if possible, the unconscious become available to me. Um, I think that's sort of the starting point. You know, you're almost shifting a mindset from the everyday to making a leap into, uh, availability and that's sort of the deepest sort of creative place and I, I you know what whatever it takes to get yeah. myself there to literally forget myself yeah um i would i, I think, would second that i think that's that's exactly spot on well i think i think everybody every writer i know drinks a lot of coffee first of all um mm -hmm. and and you know and i smoke cigars or pipes or i think i use you know Copenhagen increasingly these days, um, tobacco, uh, coffee, whatever it is. But I think that, um, you know, that's sort of the, the, the very first kind of thing one does and that availability idea is interesting. I know that when I first started writing and, and I did it without anybody telling me what to do or something. I just sat down and started writing. <clears throat> um, I was out at Padua the first year, actually, and Mednick said, why don't you write a play? And I went, oh, yeah, okay. Um, so I went and wrote a play. And uh, I had no idea what to do. And later when I started going to um, groups, um, uh, what the hell was that place? Oh God. Anyway, I'll think of it in LA. John Horn's where I met John Horn. And um and people started telling me all these rules that you had to find, you know, that you had to have structure, you had to have an outline, you had to know where you were going. All these things that I felt were very confusing because I thought the opposite, you know? And I still think the opposite. Uh so so I find that's how it's taught. I find those are the conceits that are held by a lot of workshops and, and a lot of teachers of creative writing. Um, and this is, of course, much more true, probably, maybe, um, with film and television than it is with theater. But it is true with theater, too. 
Um, and I think the very opposite is true. You know, I don't ever, ever, ever feel like I can write if there's a destination in mind. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I wanted to just jump in and just say, you know, this is the sort of, you know, this is the essence of that kind of Padua approach, which I know I've, I sort of harp on a little bit, but it's, you know, it is really that that sort of, you know, you strike a first note and if it's true, you know, if it's a true note, then the rest of the process is about uh, letting that first note kind of resonate out and create a world. Mm. And that, you know, it's essentially a poetic approach to, to writing, even if it ends up with narrative. And that, you know, the, the sort of, I think that the, the auteur filmmakers that we all like do something similar in cinema and it's just become impossible to work that way mostly although there are some you know some anomalies that creep in but i i think that first note that resonates out that's what you're sort of looking for and then you you want to be stubborn in pursuit of it you know right. in, in doing it justice well, I remember when Irene Fornes used to come to Padua, and many people have heard this story, but she would unpack, you know, she'd go to her room, whatever dorm room, you know, was um, amenable to her. She'd unpack, and the very first thing she would do was find out where the local thrift stores were and, you know, round up her girl posse and, um, and head out to the thrift stores. And it would be an all-day thing, and you'd see Irene come back late in the afternoon with all of, you know, her, um, her posse carrying chairs and, and lamps and clothes and all kinds of bizarre things. Um, you know, uh, a scuba mask and stuff, I remember one year that actually I think Kissman ended up wearing. Um, and and um, she she would then find a place because this was all outdoors for those of you who don't know site specific and she'd find a, a location that she liked just wander around find it and then she would start putting all this stuff on the ground and rearranging it and this was an all day thing I mean she'd just sit there staring at the scuba mask for two hours <laughs> and then move it few feet to the left and put the chair in place then she'd put the school mask on the chair and then no no it's a candle holder no 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 it has to be and by sundown she'd have some idea of a play and that was yeah. the strange thing and you I, we used to be really fun because we'd think what will this play be about we wonder well, she was a you know she was a painter first right i mean this yeah. is the story is that she you know she studied with oscar kakoshka and then she went to see Roger Blinn's production of Waiting for Godot in French, which she didn't speak. And, <laughs> and that's when she decided to become a playwright. It's the most remarkable story, you know, that's and, but, but still she, and she just, you know, it was Beckett's capacity to create a world. And of course, Beckett himself was always really attuned to the image, you know, all of his plays increasingly became about the image, right? But, um, but Fornes, and I, you know, when John, I think, I don't know if you do this, but I certainly do when I'm teaching playwriting, it's a version of Irene Fornes's writing exercises where you really do, just to cut back to what uh, Chris was saying, you know, you really do want to, you sort of start from a meditative place where you let everything go. And the, the you know, the first act is just to listen to what's already there uh and and right. give voice to it and that's what leads to that first note i think you know um yeah i i i remember mednick um teaching workshops at padua and this is way way back when i was the first couple of years that i remember and he used to hammer home to students each year say you know you have to get rid of that that chatter in your head, you know, the stuff you hear at the at the 7-Eleven, the stuff you hear at the supermarket, at home, the stuff on television, the newspapers you read. Of course, there are no newspapers anymore, but um, he said, you just have to sit down and let that stuff sink down and float away and mm -hmm. keep doing that and keep distilling, you know, 
um, what is you down there that you think is you, that you think is your voice. And after a while, you'll start to have some clues as to um, what your what your real voice is, you know, and that's that first note thing. And he later said, um, the more experienced you become as a writer is like be being a big game hunter. You recognize when that first note is there. You, you have fewer false starts because yeah. you recognize the real prey in a sense. That's, that's wonderful. You know, one of my uh, anchors to finding that first note is uh, a sense of place, you know, sort of mm -hmm. on a nuts and bolts level. Um, you know, Beckett starts with the image, Marie uh, Fornes's thrift store clothes, you know, whatever gets you in. But for me, it's that, you know, I, I got to know where I am, you know, uh, and it may not be where I physically am. Um, you know, this puts me in mind of my father's a, in a nurse, a skilled nursing facility, and there's an Alzheimer's wing of that place. Mm -hmm. I've gone down there and the terror that these poor patients feel is they don't know where they are. Uh, and I hear that, you know, well, who am, where am I? Uh, oh, you know, the, you don't know who you are in a sense to, unless you know where you are, I think. Yeah. So I really good. find that to be the case in, in striking that first note. And before anybody speaks, you know, what you were saying, Guy, about that true note, it's, and somehow, yeah, do you guys find that to be the case? Oh, yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of it. John, you actually, it was one of these, in one of your workshops early in my, uh, my, my time in L.A., I remember you saying something about place is very important. Something, just something like that. But it was the, the way you said it that made me kind of sit up and pay attention. And I... Um, and I always had that intuition, Chris, about that too, that the first thing you want to do in, those in that meditative place is, uh, that meditative space is to see exactly where you are. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the way that the kind of writing that we're drawn to has one foot in representational or mimetic writing, you know, in some ways, because we all know uh, and some people do this quite well. I'm just not that interested in it. We know that other kind of writing where it's completely divorced from any from any familiar reference, right. you know, yeah. mm -hmm. super experimental work that you may, I may admire, but I never feel like it has a real transformative impact. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting question, you know, um, and it also raises a another kind of maybe it's a question of the difference between, you know, place and space. Um, mm. uh, I, I find sometimes, you know, people will think, well, I'm, I'm setting this play in, you know, um, butt crack Missouri and it's out on a farm and, you know, and you just go, okay, that's so familiar already, you know, that I'm going to stop you right there. Um, and if the girl is, you know, taking a bag of lemons out of the back of her dad's pickup truck, I'm going to kick you out of class. But, you know, that's like a kind of fake place or something. Right. And, and it's not a real place. And um, you can tell when writers uh, are writing about a place they really know and have lived in. Um, um, what's his name from True Detective, Pizzolatto, writes much better about the South, you know, and, and the bayou and the back roads of those places than he does about California. Um, because you just get a sense that he, he knows that place and, and their little key, just a word here or there and you recognize there's a certain authenticity. Um, and, and it's very hard to it's very hard to sort of fake that. But then there's this other issue that, that intersects, and it intersects in, in extraordinarily complicated ways, I think, anyway. And, and that is that, that you're also writing for a, a theater space, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really tricky, right? So if you say, uh, this is, I'm writing a play about, you know, the scene takes place 
under a freeway in a, a big overpass in Los Angeles somewhere. And you go, okay, that's pretty cool, I guess, you know, where in Los Angeles, but let's talk about it. But what does the theater space look like for that? You know, um, and, and that's, those are those sorts of questions about representation because the stage could be empty. It may be that the text is explaining exactly where this, you know, freeway overpass is and exactly what it looks like. And, and, it, and it may be something else. And um, you may have a really good set designer who's going to do some kind of allegorical set of, of you know, that captures the, you know, the class implications of freeway overpasses and how they, you know, um, mark out the, the, the class boundaries for cities and so forth. Um, but you may not. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's a really tricky thing. I remember the first time I was introduced to the work of Reza Abdo, um, I had kind of heard, you know, rumors about this kid named Reza Abdo. And I say, I gotta go see one of his plays. And he was doing um, a Greek, a weird adaptation of a, of a Greek play. And I honestly forget what it was because that wasn't the significant part of the evening, but he was doing it at a little space above a store on Hollywood Boulevard. And he kept the audience outside till like one minute before the play was supposed to begin. And then you were quickly let in. It was one of those spaces that had like 11 seats. That was it. Yeah. And he had all his chalk dust. He had just been pumping the room full of chalk dust. So people walked in and were choking, you know. And so half of the 11 people walked out angrily dusting themselves off. I sat there. I went, oh, this is going to be good, you know. Choking also, however. And... Um, <laughs> And then, you know, this, the, the lights dimmed and, and the chalk dust was settling and some naked man jumped out of a, something and ran around and the play began. And it was brilliant. It was great. It was absolutely terrific. I don't even remember what, what you know, it was an adaptation of, and it doesn't matter because it was a very Abdoian vision somehow. But that's a kind of space, right? He was, the space was, was, about the fact that there was no space in a sense because he was, right. was obscuring it absolutely he's such an interesting figure you know and i because he you know he he comes at beckett from the other side of the line in a way you know i mean he but 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 he does and you know his his work is so fractured and everything but it still remains it still has this sort of rootedness in a strange way, you know, and it, it's partly because he himself culturally, I think was so uh, fractured and there's a lot of Persian performance tradition in his work, you know. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first, one of the first productions I heard of Abdo was his, his version of King Lear, where, you know, <laughs> this genius image of Cornwall and Albany come in with Reagan and Goneril riding on their shoulders. And that's how the whole thing is performed. <laughs> and I just, I just thought, yeah, it's completely, you know, completely perfect. But I wanted, I wanted to cut back, John, just to yeah. when you were talking about place and, you know, of course, space and place in, in, in sort of critical theory is a big uh, issue. And, and I think you're co completely correct about, you know, the way that you know this distinctive approach to theater making is about is about locating place specifically and it's where the actor relates directly to what the what the playwright has done and right. i um and and it, there's a kind of a circuit that gets completed that has to do with you know reconciling language with the body in a way, which is not to be underestimated. And I, I just thought when you were talking, I thought about this, this, this thing that I have, you know, it's one of these, maybe I'm being unfair, but you know, it's one of these things that you need to recognize how, you know, Tom Stoppard is different than Harold Pinter. You know, whenever I, you know, it's like one of those things where I hear, you know, somebody saying, oh yeah, I love Beckett and Pinter and Stoppard. And I go like, <laughs> no. You know, like, no, there's a fundamental difference there. Meaning, what you lo what you find in people like Stoppard is is the absence of 
place. You know, the absence of a real poetic ground for me. That's right. my no, no, and and I, I wholeheartedly agree. That's really interesting, and that's and I don't want to digress too far because I want to hear more from both of you on that this very issue. But that does remind me that <clears throat> one of the disconcerting things when you talk to people, friends, even people you know who are who are quite bright or something, you realize that that. Um, a good audience, a really sophisticated theater audience is incredibly rare. You know, people that mm. will respond to certain things that we're talking about here and, and, and can make that distinction. One of the distinctions being Tom Stoppard is not Harold Pinter. Um, and that Stoppard represents a kind of regression to something that, that Pinter and Beckett and these people, Vigenet, were working very hard to get past um, and, and move around. And, um, uh, but, but I, I will talk to people who I, again, I think I respect enormously. I respect their intelligence about all kinds of things, you know, um, politics, history, whatever, social events. And then they will say something about theater and I'll think, well, my God, why did you say that? I wish you hadn't said that, you know? Um, like, well, you know, John Patrick Shanley's not so bad. I mean, he really did some good work. And I just, you know, inside there's like, you know, this like explosion in my head. I can't, you know, because I don't know what to say to that. I say, oh, well, so you, you know, in a sense, you don't really understand what we're talking about here. And, and that's really hard. It's a really hard thing because it sounds incredibly hubristic and arrogant to say that. But, um, but, but I know that, that there are people, the three of us, for example, and, and, and others, and Irene Fornassus and Nebnik and whoever, Peter Brook, and, you know, um, who very clearly got that distinction. You know, Cantor with Krico in, in Krakow. Um, you know, there's something just so innately about all these things we're talking about, space and place and um, presentness and, and the way that, that it, he is doing something that can be done in no other medium. And, and that's the other thing. Anyway, yeah, absence of a good audience. That was all I wanted to say. It's a disheartening, yeah. disheartening reality. But. Right. And, and, and what I would add to that, what, you know, Stoppard or John Patrick Shanley are, are missing and is this, I get, for lack of a better word, a sense of the existential. And, that, I, yes. you know, I, that's what you see in Beckett. That's what you see in Pinter. That's what you see in great work. Um, yeah. I heard you say, John, in, in you know, some of your workshops, uh, you know, what, what, are the, what are the mysterious forces or unseen forces that move people through the world? You know, a, a sense of that. And that goes back to the that first note, the first principle, a sense of place, where do you start? You know, that's in the, in the mix somewhere before you start writing. You, that's in the place of not knowing. What are these other forces? And it's completely absent in shitty work. And that's what one of the things yeah. that make the work not resonant and yeah. not memorable. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. And Chris, it reminds me of the book that you turned me on to at one point, that devotional cinema book. Right, right. And I, uh, I forget the author. It was a pretty cool book about, Nathan, yeah. you know, the kind of, you know, the, the high auteur European filmmaking that I remember when I was um, first moved to New York, um, you know, it used to be there were six or seven movie houses that were constantly rotating, you know, great filmmaking. And the thing is that in New York City, there were, um, you know, some small, uh, some small cadre or, um, you know, I think of the long tail, you know, it's some small percentage of, of people who love that kind of work. But out of six million people, there were enough so that you would, you would go to these films in the middle of the day and you'd see a half, you know, half full uh, auditorium. So you knew that there were others and it was that kind of communing that that sort of ratified and validated your own interest in this work that is that was everything about the mystery you're describing chris in the domain of of cinema and right. you know it goes back to this issue of you know this perennial kind of chestnut about what's the difference between art and entertainment you know 
And for me, it has so much to do with intention, you know, that yeah. the intent of the artist is to wake us up to that mystery you're describing. Whereas the intention of the entertainer is really to kind of paper over it and let us forget it. Mm -hmm. And and that seems always to me to cut through a lot of the... Yeah. Um, well, that was that famous, I think I've said this before, even on here, the, the, I think it was Horkheimer that said, um, you know, the culture industry, um, entertainment is like psychoanalysis in reverse. Mm. And, and, and that's absolutely true. I mean, it, it is there to, um, it is there to, to put you to sleep, to, to uh, sort of push buttons of familiarity that will elicit certain kinds of responses. And look, I mean, I remember when I was, God, I was only like 13, maybe. I was really young. And some friends of a friend or something came by and told my mother, oh, would John like to come see this play tonight? It's pretty weird, but, you know, he's pretty, he's pretty weird boy, so he might, he might like it. Um, and, and I said, sure. And it was some production, a neighborhood kind of theater in LA, um, production of Waiting for Godot. And I went, and I was, I was just, I mean, partly I was traumatized, you know, um, but, but partly I was just, it, 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 you know, it was so sublime. It was like, it's just this bell going off, you know, this buzzer in my head going, oh, this people have been keeping this from me. You know, mm. this is, this is the truth somehow. And by the time that Lucky's speech happened, yeah. Yeah. you know, I just, I just was like beside myself. <laughs> um, in, it, I was just deliriously happy. I thought, whatever the fuck this mm. is, you know, sign me up. And, um, and I went home and I later said, do you think I could go see that again sometime before, you know, and they said, well, it closes next week. It's okay. You know, we can go tomorrow. Um, and I think my dad took me the next day or day after, and I watched it a second time and, you know, and loved it just as much, was just as entertained, was just as fascinated by the mystery of the whole thing. Um, the thing that I remember that I took away from it was, um, that that there was something magical and and kind of sinister but magical um about the theater about that was really different from television or film that was my introduction to it and i thought and i never forgot it it was like it was like a great mystery this something really mysterious going on here mm. um and i knew one of the actors um because he was like friend of a friend of my mom's or something and um that played i you know vladimir i think but anyway and um and he was a schnook you know he was a dopey guy and there he was though in this beckett play and i was mesmerized and i thought he was like really great i don't know if he was or not what i'd think today but um but he was transformed from this schnook that i knew into you know this tramp in this existential drama and i think chris it's what you're saying it's like there was some instinctual recognition of the existential that that was mm -hmm. a real experience that right. was a thing you know and and um you know and and there's all those stories you know there's all the famous san quentin workshop you know stories and all that mm -hmm. stuff about you know the response to this kind of work people that that will recognize um, the difference somehow. And, and mm. lots of people won't, and lots of people won't ever, you know. So, um, but anyway, um, writing again, um, this, this thing about um, reading other writers and stuff, do you guys do that? I do, I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's great fuel and inspiration. I'll go through periods, sort of fallow periods where I'm not writing or not working on something I have a deadline for or something. And I'll, I'll certain things I'll go back to to be infused by them. Um, yeah. And I'll read bad writing, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, here in LA, I'll read, you know, bad stuff to see what's, you know, what are people looking for? And, what, you know, this goes back to your your 
thoughts about audience and why they're, I don't know, what, yeah. poorly educated. And th this gets into the questions of relatability. That's a lot, you know, I've, I've heard notes and out here and people talk about, the, well, they're not relatable and they're not, you know, that's a whole other issue. Um, no, so but I it's interesting. try to avoid that. <laughs> well, no, well, I, I yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, you know, one of the, I was just thinking about other things because it's true um, for me, you know, that reading other palate cleansers or, the, you know, almost like tuning fork writers, you know, those writers that just sort of uh, reconnect you to what's possible uh, in writing, you know, and mm -hmm. yeah. um, sort of mm -hmm. blow away all the sort of, but there, you know, there's, um, you know, once you get your teeth into a piece, for me anyway, then it's a different kind of, process where you're really sort of focused in a different way and sometimes for me that takes forever you know my my process tends to be really really long mm -hmm. but i um you know john i was also thinking about you know the way in which you developed as a writer in this context of you know daily proximity to really great actors and one of the things that i've always yeah. thought about your work and i remember john o'keefe saying something about your work as being about you know, reassessing um, the nature of the actor in your in your playwriting, mm -hmm. and that you know, some of that came from like, okay, I've got here's Lee Kisman, what can he do? <laughs> you know, like what what is it that? And it just related to what you mentioned about um, about uh, your experience of watching Waiting for Godot. I was like, you know, it just this thing of like, here's Lee Kisman or or Kathleen Kramer or um, Rick Dean, and your your sensitive uh, sensitivity to what is it that they what is the truth of what they want to express, you know, yeah. and and then this is something that was possible in Los Angeles in a way that it would never have been possible in New York City, for example, where contact between playwrights and actors is always mediated by institutions, producers, authority figures who have mechanized to some degree um, what it is, you know, the culture industry is much more um, sort of, there's much more infrastructure where, you know, playwrights encounter actors in a certain time and place, but not others. And of course, there are times where this breaks down, like in the off-off-Broadway movement, or with someone like Adam Rapp, you have a sense that it broke down. But um, anyway, uh, I'm riff. I'm, I'm going well, off now, but it's it, just yeah. another element of, you know. Yeah, and, and it is interesting. I mean, I, I do read other writers sometimes. I think when I was first starting out, I did it much more than I do now. Um, now I just, I, I will often think about somebody, but I used to, all my early plays, I would sometimes sit down and read a page of, of Brecht or of, read some of Wojciech or, you know, um, read some, I, you know, anybody, Pinter, Beckett, Genet, mm -hmm. um, Ionesco. And uh, it was, it was, it was a way to, um, be reminded that language has the potential to to achieve this level of clarity of, and presence. It, it, you know, you pick up a Bernhard play. You know, a party for Boris. I love a party for Boris. And read, open any page and read just one page of dialogue. There is something. Yeah. there's just something there it's ineffable it's difficult to describe but it has a theatrical presence you it, it, it just and it makes me think sometimes that there are just writers who can write for theater and there are some who can't and there that's that um um but but i i do think that that writing plays is quite different than than anything else but anyway the actor question is I mean, that's almost a whole podcast by itself, boy. Um, mm. Because that's, that you know, um, what is acting, you know? what I, I've had that when, when I taught at the film school. We said, you know, I asked people, what, what do you think it is that an actor does? You know, well, he's playing the part of, I said, but what does that mean? You know, playing the part. I said, you, do, you, you watch a play or a film, 
a play in particular, you don't think you're watching real life. You're not fooled in that way. You're watching a performance. You're in a theater, you bought a ticket, you're sitting there, you watch the performance of something that resembles real life in some way um, or, or not. I, but, but so what is the actor doing? And I still don't have an answer for that um, entirely, you know. I know like with, with um, actors can, I like, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, actors are uncanny in a way that they don't even realize, you know, but they really are. You know, Absolutely. They are more themselves when they are being someone else. It's just a remarkable thing. And I think we're all fascinated by that. Yeah. 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 And I will put up sometimes with, with difficult actors um, <laughs> if they bring this thing. You know, I mean, Rick Dean being a perfect example, right? Um, um, he was much better behaved with me because he liked doing my work, I think. And, and um, so we had a kind of truce, but he could be very, very difficult. Uh, but I didn't care, you know, because that end of Storyland, uh, they staged him doing that strange sweeping gesture. I don't, can't imagine anybody else doing that. I, it, it wouldn't be possible. It was this giant Texan, you know, insane bipolar Texan um, th that commanded the stage in this certain kind of way. And, and um, you, could, you could choreograph him in this way and this thing would happen. Um, and it was remarkable. It was remarkable. And, and, you know, Lee Kissman, who I suppose is is my favorite actor. I had Lee in a play and I remember thinking this guy listens better on stage than any actor I've ever worked with. I mean, he just listens. And so even when somebody else is talking, you're watching him listening. And, and so maybe I should use him, you know, because there's, <laughs> there's something really interesting. And I think the secret to Kissman is, um, is he he never, ever, ever rushes a line. If you think about his performances, they're always, he, he takes an extra beat before he says anything. It's a micro beat sometimes um, to situate himself so that then it's not rushed and it's honest somehow, a Kismenian version. It's like phrasing. It's like That's phrasing. I think you put your finger on something there, John, with, and, and this makes me think of what we we're talking about with writing, this sense of no destination, right? Mm -hmm. So an actor's not, there's no anxiety about having to get somewhere, get to the next line, you know, move forward to the climax. Same thing with writing. And, and yes, actors that can embody that and it's mm -hmm. like pure presence is one of the best things to see, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we all know the the frustrations of, of working in Los Angeles in terms of actors getting parts and they can't do your play and they drop out at the last second and you can't be mad because they have to feed their family and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, but, but it's also the fact that actors who work a lot in TV and film, you sort of have to beat that out of them when you, <laughs> you get them in your play, you know? Um, right. Because that stuff is, is part of, they need to be detoxified too, just like we're talking about the writer kind of has to be. Um, it's, it's, it's muscle memory for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It yeah. Is. What it is. Slow, down. Slow down is a big direction, right? I mean, the, you, actors used to talking fast, ripping through the beats, but no, just slow down. Yeah. Listen yeah. to each other. It's also this insidious thing that it, it's very unfortunate that happens to actors. And I think it's actually kind of uh, kind of uh, cultural politics is that you know American actors come to a place where they don't understand how it might be be a good thing to let the audience not like you yeah. I remember seeing um, Albie's play about the baby in North Hollywood and there was some there was one actor who was on it but most of the actors were bewildered because every line that Albie writes is a way of saying to the audience, fuck you. Yeah. And the actors just, it was like, well, I don't know how to, why would I tell the audience, fuck you? Because 
I want them to like me, you know, and you could just see that it was sort of conflicting with all of their, you know, ingrained habits of really like, like me, please like me. And you see, you know, you see the great European or Polish actors, for example, yeah. they don't give a damn. They don't no. care. No. You know, that's not their, that's not their job. Their job is to be true to what, you know, to, to the moment in the piece Absolutely. or to the language or whatever. They have no problem being unlike, unlikable, See, <laughs> but it's the, really a, a barrier. Totally. You, you, yeah, anyway. These are the issues of relatability and identification, which, you know, I, I, I can't identify with the character. An actor might say that, an audience might, and we, people who've been trained, they have to see themselves in the character. They have to like them, and it's so insidious, and it's in, you see it in bad TV writings. Let people fucking be who they are. Let them be dark. Let them be difficult. But yes, that fear in actors of being unlikable and writers too, you know. I've heard, I've heard that from students. And well, it's too dark. And what if, you know, people don't like, well, people shouldn't like him. This is the way he or she is. Um, you know, yeah. there's a great, Janae has this great quote. Identification is the lowest form of appreciation. Yeah. I, I think that's right on. <laughs> Yeah, and I have, I have, I have used that quote uh, before. No, and I think it's true. I mean, it, because what they're doing is something different. An actor in, who's a really good actor, the, the good ones I know, are, it's, it's something very mysterious, though, because it's, you know, this is where you start talking about our toe at this point. Um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of weird masochistic process for an actor um, a good one every time it should be anyway um, and and uh, I, Martin Donovan and I had a conversation the other this is going to actually be in my blog post but I'll relate it and he asked what was the really you know the last transformative theater experience you had watching a play and I said well I hate to say this but it was probably like 1982 hmm. um, Richard Foreman directed a Botho Strauss play um, at the public theater in New York, um, three acts of recognition, which got terrible reviews. Uh, Frank Rich hated it. Um, it was like three hours long and, and Richard Jordan was the star and Jordan was just absolutely brilliant. Um, and it still haunts me. I still think of his, his, that performance, but, um, that's a long time between transformative experience. <laughs> Um, and, and yet, you know, um, that may be that that's as it should be. I've seen great work since then, but not, not that kind Funny of because in 82, I think it was 82 that I saw Foreman's, uh, Egyptology in, at, well, the, yeah. uh, at the public. And it, it had the same impact on me. I, I was like, oh my God, man, you know, yeah. theater can be very, very cool, you know, and yeah. I hadn't realized that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing, writing. Let's, let's get back for a second yeah. to writing. Because the, the question, like with dialogue, say, when you start a play, and Pinter said this in his Nobel Prize speech, right? Like, you, you have a word. What does it mean? What's it referring to? Dark. Is it a woman's hair? Is it the room? Is it that? Um, and, and what is it? Where's the impulse come from to start a play? You overhear a sentence. Again, Pinter said, you know, I'm walking mm -hmm. down a hotel corridor and the door is ajar and there's a man and a woman sitting talking or one standing, one sitting. And I just wondered what they were talking about. So I went and wrote what I thought they were talking about. And that became, I guess, the birthday party or the room, I forget. Anyway, um, it, is, it is, when I did The Shaper, I had that title. Somebody said, oh, yeah, because my friend works as a shaper. And I said, what the fuck's a shaper? Mm. Shape surfboards. I said, oh, my God, that's so great. You know, I want a shaper. Um, and so I thought that's the title of the play, and I'll figure out what the play is later, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with that title. Um, but, but dialogue, that seems to me the essence of the mystery on some level. And it is mm. poetic, and it is like musical, no? It's like you, you learn you learn to, to, to hear where, where there should be a pause and, and. This is a big thing, John. Yeah. Because the monologue, like I always feel like it's, it's when you have a dialogue that you have theater, because it's when you have a dialogue that you have 
the stage and also a big thing between you and I, the offstage, right? right? Because if you, if you have a monologue, this is why I always rebelled against the, uh, you know, the whole like one person show kind of thing. If yeah. you have a one person show and you just put another actor on the stage, you, you have something infinitely more interesting right away. Absolutely. You, because yep. you, you know, you suddenly have, there's a question. What is the space that they occupy? You know, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's so mysterious. What, I think what this that is. I think I've said this before, and I people have argued with me, and I I've hesitated to believe if it was true or not. But I have said you can't have theater unless there's two characters or two voices. Anyway, um, you know, you you, mm. and you know, and yet people, you know, Bernhard, different people have written single character plays, but there's always, there's always a, a mitigating factor there. You, you can't, it's, theater doesn't exist till one character speaks to the other character or until one character looks at the other character. Mm. Then the play begins. It doesn't, there is no play before that, I don't think. Mm. And, um, and so it is a big thing and, and, and dialogue, I, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with, with how, how, you know, if you actually tape people having a conversation in America, it's, a, it's, a, it's astounding um, how incoherent people's conversations are. <laughs> you know, just astounding. And you so couldn't true. put it on stage or anything. It's just, but it's just people speak in fragments and they wander off and they their thoughts you know are interrupted they interrupt themselves everything's kind of fragmented and truncated and weird and with abortive starts and stops and um yeah. and so you're not duplicating that right people always say to, i mean one of the things i love is people say well you know I, how was your Shakespeare? You directed a Shakespeare. The guy said, oh yeah, it was great. Well, I will say at least I got them to talk like, you know, regular people. I thought, the fuck did you want to do that for? You know, Shakespeare's people aren't talking. It's poetry, you moron. Um, it's not like regular people. You know, Pinter's play, people, I, Pinter had a great ear. No, <laughs> Pinter was a great writer. He wasn't copying things he heard. Pinter characters yeah. talk like Pinter characters. You know, John. John, one of the things I've heard, you, uh, things I've heard you say in workshops that's been sort of a uh, great sort of guidepost for me is uh, uh, concerning dialogue. Is that uh, character comes out of dialogue, not the other way around? Yeah. Do you remember me saying that? And yeah. It's so true, right? People yep. announce who they are, uh, and that's a great that speaks to the first moment when we're starting to write. You you hear something before you're thinking of whoever, whoever the character is, uh, they speak. And that's what, you know, that's what we're hearing with real people talk. They, they're announcing the fact that they're schizophrenic or there's nothing at the core or they're completely dislocated or they're beaten down by their jobs or whatever it is. So that goes back to the starting point. But um, I don't know, maybe you can speak a little more about that because that's, that's sort of the essential. Well, yeah, I think that is, I'm glad you mentioned it. And, and, because I think it is absolutely true. I'm absolutely, I mean, it is true. Um, you, don't, you don't sit down and go, well, I have this guy and he's a, you know, he's a Wall Street head fungus manager and he's about 30 years old and, you know, he's very physically fit and he comes from this anal wasp family in Connecticut and that's this character. And I'm going to start writing dialogue for him. It does not work that way. Right. No. Um, you know, you write, the words are magic. Words and dialogue are alchemical. And you might have a play that begins with, um, you know, the, the thing, the radio play coming up um, on, you know, SoundCloud or something begins with this, pause, this, the second character says, my resume, your resume, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. That, I start to know who these people are. I didn't before. I just heard that opening, um, a, I mean, a job application interview, you know, and I took that kind of from some of the late, it's modeled in a way, I suppose, on, on some of those late one acts of Pinter's. Um, but, but I liked, and then only later did the guy applying for the job in my mind become an African. Um, 
you know, and, and it was hot that I decided it was really hot much later, but it came out of um, the rhythm of the dialogue, the number of pauses, suddenly that room felt hot to me in my head. They were in a hot room, maybe a tropical heat kind of. Mm. So, and that's where it went. So it's, it's, it's absolutely magical. And you have to kind of trust that. I think that, that, that the words, the words precede, you know, concept, understanding, everything. You're, you're, and that's true in poetry, right? I mean, well, and it's true in life. I mean, this is the sort of, this is the politics of these issues. The politics of these issues is ultimately about the nature of identity, you know, and that, it, you know, that the, the sort of truth that everybody is constantly trying to get away from is that you know, identity is, is finally groundless. And, you know, all, all of our, so much of our activity goes into grounding that by accumulating a position, wealth, property, you know, the whole nightmare begins right there with that, that, you know, fundamental delusion that identity, you know, Mm. that identity can be grounded. It can't be. Right. And theater, of course, is where that truth is revealed. And, you know, the, the, the playwrights we like are the ones who use theater to get back to that underlying reality of the theater space, which is groundlessness, in my view. You know? Yeah, and I think that's Artaud, right? I mean, for that, sure, that was part of what his whole project was, because he was rebelling against a kind of stagnant theater um, in France at that time, that... Um, that he said, this is just false. This is just not right. Um, and, but, but yeah, it's, it's really tricky and it's, and it's very hard to, um, in a sense, to teach that to, to people who are, are steeped in a different kind of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's why when I talk to students and they talk about, you know, what should I read? What, you know, you know, um, I say, well, you know, you, you can, if I just had to limit that answer, I would say read poets writing about writing, but read poets, mm-hmm. read, you know, um, Robert Bly or James Wright or Auden or, you know, Ann Carson um, uh, or Charles Olson, read them about writing. It doesn't matter, you know, Olson's book, Call Me Ishmael, about Moby Dick. That's one of the great books um, to read if you wanting to learn to be a writer in theater, I think. Um, yet it has nothing about theater in it. The Ann Carson that Guy recommended to me, The Economy of the Unlost. It's a great book to read um, because it's really a poem. The whole book is really a poem, even though it's a history and, a, and slightly theoretical. And um, But it's still a poem and it 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 uses language in that way that Bly talked about in his essay, Leaping Poetry, right? That, that you have to make these leaps. You don't say, um, you know, that's a beautiful guitar. Did you get it in Cordoba? It's, the sound is magical. You have to say, that's a beautiful guitar. Sheep smell when they fart. And I was in Cordoba once. <laughs> right. You know, that's way more interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, but 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 it is. And 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 um because I think the whole the whole you know under um undercurrent, what's the word I'm looking for? The sort of the scaffolding on which all you know genuine theater takes place is something that is um that is alchemical and it's it's Dionysian and it's it's all of these things and it's slightly irrational, um, mm. and it's mining something in us. It is it is touching some part of us um, where trauma exists, you know, because everybody's traumatized somehow in our early childhood in our psychic formation. Somewhere there is that that first or second or third kind of dislocation 
um, that is, as Guy just said, about identity. You know, I mean, I don't want to get all Lacanian, but but that yeah, I mean, it it ties in, I think. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, there's a. I mean, it's funny that you know Deleuze says uh, that there's a moment of psychosis right before the formation of every identity, <laughs> which which I think is is That's actually great. an interesting. Um, but that's great. But that's great. And uh, you know those yeah. those those leaps uh, those in the nuts and bolts of the writing. You know when we're talking to students, the, the revelations happen through editing, and that's a you know that's a huge part of teaching and cuts. And you know someone may have overwritten something. I mean I'm you know I may have overwritten something, and then you start cutting. And I know you're big on this, John. And you know, everything can use trims, then the magic starts to happen. You start to, you know, remove a connector between two sentences and yeah. a speech or something, and suddenly the existential appears or the fracturedness yeah. of someone's identity. And it's really yeah. a kind of, editing is the kind of magic and it's not done enough. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And, and I think if, you know, when any time, any times you're asked, for notes, you can just say, well, cut, and you'll be right. You don't have Never to replay. Just Never start fails. with, well, cut it, trim, trim. Yeah. How much? 50%. Start with 50%. But I um, like that line. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, then by for <laughs> sure, cut it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, like, cut it. Cut. So you hate everything. Yeah. But it is true. You know, it is true. I mean, um, um, Somebody sent me something recently, uh, who I won't identify, and it's a very interesting piece, but it was wildly overwritten, and there was one word on the first page, and I said, I like that word there. That's kind of a great word to open the play with, but can you just get rid of the next whole page and go to this <laughs> part here, or something? Just, but those are two different conversations. I said, yeah, I don't care. You know, now they're the same conversation. Right. Um, and, and she went, you know, that's kind of great. That's, I, it's great. You're right. Um, it, 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 it is, it is a mysterious process, I think. And, and everybody has the experience and I'm, I mean, I'm sure you guys do, um, where you're writing and you're writing and you're writing and maybe you are forcing it a little, and maybe you have a deadline and maybe, um, you know, you're trying to get this done. It's, you know, I remember in Hollywood, I used to hate this aspect of things. Um, and then you look down and you've written like two pages and you, and you know, instantly it's junk, right? Mm -hmm. And you just throw it out and, and, and you wonder why did it fit? You know, sometimes you, you recognize it much sooner, but sometimes it goes on and on for quite a while. And I mean, I've written 10 pages that were junk, um, and thrown them out and had to start over. And I think you, you can expect like a four to one ratio Mm -hmm. And that's maybe lucky, being yeah. mystic. <laughs> yeah, um, because because I because I think it's hard. But that's that's this thing. I think we're circling around this one thing, which is well, it's, you know all you have to do is think of uh, T. S. Eliot's first first draft of the Proof yeah. Rock poem. Mm. I think yeah. it was Proof Rock, and 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 pound just cut it to shit but this yeah. is true also of you know people like raymond carver and i was like, just gonna say gordon lish right. made raymond carver you know right. yeah and i mean you know there's you know there was Ra raymond carver was underneath the raymond carver it's just that uh you know you have to remove all that stuff and you got to be pretty brutal about it and, and lish was brilliant i mean those were brilliant edits he made if you've ever yeah. read the original carver right um yeah. brilliant edits uh, and, and that's what you, yeah, I guess that's the ultimate goal is to become, um, your own Gordon Lish, you know, to have this, this Ezra right. Pound Gordon Lish voice in your head somehow, right. um, doing that. It's, and it's hard, it's hard. Um, and, and I think the other thing, you know, when we, when I came out recently to LA and we all met and we talked about aesthetic resistance and we're going to do some pod plays. And I said, I, I keep getting this feeling that given where we are in history in this particular moment, um, 
you know, with quarantines and children being separated on the playground. I mean, it's such madness. And I said, I feel like theater has to respond um, by, by some process that is less, not more. That, that, that somehow there has to be a, a contraction and a, and a distillation and, a, and a, um, a, a finding, you know, cutting out the fat and, and the waste and, and everything that exists in culture that is, that is fat and waste. And that's most of it, you know. Um, everything from Hollywood blockbusters, these just empty, bloated exercises in, 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 you know, money laundering, I guess, I don't know, um, to, to the kind of sentimental bathos of, of, you know, MFA programs or, or, you know, big institutional theaters or regional theater, the stuff they do. Um, because the sense I get, and this could be completely my own insanity, and I mean that sincerely, but the, the, the sense I get is that, um, those actors in in Seattle or Chicago or Louisville or Baltimore or Dallas or wherever they are doing regional theater, that they they know deep down that something has to that this is bad. This stuff. This is not. We can't live on this. This is not nutritious. You know. This is not spiritually sustaining us that it's somehow inauthentic and counterfeit but they don't know what from whence will come the voice of the authentic you know and nor do i you know yeah. um but but i sense that it's not going to be that it's that it's going to creep into the world very quietly somehow and and minimally i but i don't know yeah. i don't know if that even makes sense but but um I, I think the um, Bernard Harcourt has this book about surveillance and the modern like surveillance state and you know um, and he says it's it's the it's the counter revolution where there was no revolution um, that that the state really is waging war and psychological like massive psyops whether intentional or not against its own people. And that's kind of the feeling I get with, with culture now, you know, American culture, that it's a, that it's a, a giant kind of um, uh, disfigured, mistaken, half-aborted psyops that um, <laughs> is, is waged against the public. You know? um, but I, I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah. well, okay, let's, we should probably wrap this up. Um, this was great. I think we should talk yeah. about writing more, actually. Yeah, let's do a part two sometime, because there's yeah. plenty more to talk about. You know yeah, what I would like to, to, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'd love to also do another. Yeah. another yeah. Great, because what I would love to do, and maybe we can think about this, um, we should talk about directing. Um, yes, for sure. Right? For sure. Because I remember when I started writing plays and, and nobody would <laughs> direct my plays. So I said, well, okay, I'll do it. And I said, who can teach me? Where do you learn about directing? And I just got blank stares be because nobody kind of teaches how to be a director um, or what that even means, right? I mean, it's a, it's a late invention anyway. Um, so... And it is very, because I remember when I very first plays, I did not know how to talk to actors at all. I mean, at all. Um, you know, you, I kept thinking, do I tell them to just be funnier? Like, hey, could you be funnier? Can you say that louder? <laughs> but it's hard, right? You don't, there's, because there's certain rules and conventions even. And, right. Um, and, and it's it's um, it's 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 something that I at least for me I rarely hear discussed. Herbert Blau wrote about it a bit, but um, 
but it's but it's mysterious. Okay. Anyway, thanks, guys. Um, yeah. Thank you, John. My wife thanks, tells John. me I I talk too much on these, so I hope I didn't. Do A lot that. of fun. Um, but uh, it was great, and to tell everybody else the um the quarantine plays, the radio plays where there is no radio, uh, will be up on SoundCloud soon in the next week uh, with plays by Guy Zimmerman and, and me and Jeff the Storm and Calla Churchwald and Dan Sullivan and John Bauer um, and lots of people and eventually Chris Rossi and Wes Walker. A lot of very good writers and, and Elizabeth Spreen. I don't want to forget anybody here. Um, they're going to be short little one acts um, about um, quarantine, <laughs> existential quarantine. Yeah. All right. right, guys. Thank you very much. And um, See you later, brother. Yeah. This is up. Thanks. Adios. Take care. Bye.